Chili Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Shelly. Ah, December 6, 2023, allegedly according to that thing we call a calendar, and this is the Ocelli Effect. So, you might notice I sound a little stronger, but still a little stuffed up. We're still recovering over here, but uh, a lot better than I was a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) So, welcome to it. Welcome to Wednesday or Woden's Day, the middle of the week. Um... Now, this is an interesting topic. Uh, uh, the topic, the guest you may be familiar with if you've listened to my show for a while, for sure. But the topic is different. Why? Um, you know, different types of media have different effects. Um, sometimes, you know, media is just entertainment and it's just junk food for the brain and that's all there is to it. Uh, people figured out a while ago to stop writing scripts. They could just bring on real people, create circumstances and have reality TV. Sure. That's something that went on and still goes on as we're living through yet another incarnation of the Jersey Shore, I think. Uh, I'm not living through it, but somebody is because they're making it. <laughs> Anyway, it is what it is. And, of course, I've talked on this uh, program about the evolution of the talk show. Uh, Even the other day discussing what? Phil Donahue and the fact that uh, he had a format that was sort of picked up by Oprah Winfrey, etc., etc., and later on evolved into the Jerry Springer experience. They called those things talk shows, but the way Springer did it, it was what? The Battle of the Idiots. Uh, and, And who knows if all those idiots were actual real people or not. They could have been actors. And later on, they took that format and gave it over to his security guy, the bald guy, Steve uh, Wilkos, right? Anyway, the evolution of various types of media, its effect on society and society's effect on it is actually what we might end up discussing tonight. Why? There was a phenomenon, you know, at some point, and it was uh, some years ago, really, at its at its height of popularity, unsolved mysteries now that fits a lot into true crime and true crime is a genre that continues especially in the podcast world it is one of the most popular types of podcast it's one of the most popular types of tv show it's almost always a winner check any network or streaming service they got plenty of true crime and unsolved mysteries kind of fell into that category but it was different um Along with things like America's Most Wanted, the audience was meant to get involved. Anyway, I find this interesting, just like I find the evolution of, like I said, even even reality TV kind of interesting, starting with real people, if you think about it. Back in the uh, 70s there with John Barber's creation and what a monster he created going on to basketball wives and every other maniac thing that happened, the real world, etc., Unsolved Mysteries, though, is a weird thing because I don't think anything really evolved from it, although it was baked into that true crime sort of genre, and yet it was its own thing, too. I'm not going to discuss this on my own. I've got veteran journalist Albert Lanier with me who wrote a piece about this. Now, he wrote this a little ways back, but due to the fact that I had to go to Dallas and then I spent three weeks sick, <laughs> um, 
we got a couple of months here that I probably should have gotten them on a couple of months ago, and I meant to. And then crazy stuff kept happening. Uh, so, and, and the road trip to Dallas and all that. So you guys know I've been busy. It's been crazy. The network's been weird. So I finally got back around to bring on Albert Lanier again uh, at the tail end because he's probably discussed this in other places with a couple other people. <laughs> and but, but guarantee you won't hear this conversation anywhere else. He wrote a piece about Unsolved Mysteries. And we're going to talk about that along with God knows what else, because I never script this either. Uh, Mr. Lanier, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine. Starting out, I love the taxonomy and the digression of your evolution of talk shows. The way that Bill Donahue begat Oprah, begat, begat Jerry Springer. Uh, I actually liked that, because I, I thought that was great. So I just wanted to come out and say... Love the opening. Love the opening. Even though it's nothing to do with Unsolved Mysteries. I like it even better because it has nothing to do with Unsolved Mysteries. But I love that opening because I used to watch the Phil Donahue show. Right. That's a whole other show to talk about. But this is a first for me. Um, as people who have heard me on the O'Chelly Effect and on other shows probably are aware, I'm in kind of brand new territory. Now, I was a journalist and I was a writer for 22 years, freelance writer for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And I, among the things that I did as a journalist and a freelancer, was I was a film reviewer for about eight years or so, an online film reviewer. I used to cover film festivals. Right. I wasn't a TV critic. So let me just state that from the outset. If there are fans of Unsolved Mysteries or other TV shows, I'm not a TV critic. I don't know much about TV critics, film, film, film critics. I know I've met them. I've interviewed them. I've talked to other film reviewers. Uh, so I know that I know that aspect very well. I don't know anything about TV critics. I know a couple. Mm. Uh, what's his name? Tom Shields. I think of Washington Post. It was John J. O'Connor. I think the New York times, but I don't know anything about TV criticism. And this is a first for me because I've never really talked about a TV show. Mm-hmm. And so people are probably wondering, well, if you're a journalist and you're a freelance writer and you were a freelance writer and you were a journalist and you're a writer, why are you talking about TV now? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I found out, oh, I guess late September, early October about the anniversary of Unsolved Mysteries. Okay. And that got me to thinking. I've been on a number of podcasts since 2019 where I have analyzed true crime content. You talk about the explosion in true crime and that it's very successful. That's what I had heard because I was, I actually got started talking about true crime by actually supposedly I was going to go on another show and talk, you know, go back to another show and talk about a subject. And the host wasn't that interested in the subject. I asked, so what are you interested in? He said, well, true crime's hot in Hollywood. And I went, okay, well, the only thing I know I, I didn't follow true crime. Now I listen to a couple podcasts here and there, mm-hmm. but I didn't know. So uh, b- the death of Bob Crane and the death of Natalie Wood were the only ones I'm kind of familiar with. And so that's how I started in terms of true crime. Now, why do I say all that? Because when I was on these shows, uh, and I still do it from time to time, analyzing true crime cases, right. hosts would ask me, how did you find out about this particular case or that particular case? How did it come to your attention? And the answer is, 
I saw it on Unsolved Mysteries. I saw this segment on the original Unsolved Mysteries. I saw that segment. And so I decided if I can say that I saw this on Unsolved Mysteries or I got this case from Unsolved Mysteries, why not talk about Unsolved Mysteries? Never wanted to, but I thought, seems fair to me. So that's initially how this all got started that I'm talking about Unsolved Mysteries. Okay, well, and I have a question right here because Unsolved Mysteries, in a way, as I said during the introduction, fits in the true crime genre, but also doesn't because not Mm -hmm. everything on on Unsolved Mysteries was um, true crime. Some things were just weird circumstances or long-lost relatives even. Um, They had all sorts of things like this. Uh, You know, here's somebody Mm -hmm. who was born, their father had to leave the country. I remember specifically a couple of them were, uh, you know, like somebody who was a, a military person. And they maybe had a child, and they weren't aware of how to find that child. And uh, Mm -hmm. a couple of those were on there. So it wasn't always crime. It might have indeed been something that was a mystery to someone in their life. They they were adopted. Uh, They had lost track of an item, even. Uh, A couple of times it was a special item, right? Something that was important to a a, Mm -hmm. a family legacy uh, in one way or another. It was weird. And, And also, there were disappearances. Um, and there were crimes. Now, I even confided in you that I'd recently gotten a hold of an artifact from Unsolved Mysteries, which was weird. Right. Uh, it was a random occurrence. I got a hold of their copy of the Zapruder film again because I'm a JFK guy. Um, you know, and they did some enhancements and stuff like that because they had done some stuff on the Kennedy assassination on Unsolved Mysteries. Now, I don't even remember the episode, honestly. Yeah, um, I don't either. Yeah. It's funny because I know they did a segment on Martin Luther King. Right. Um, and they did at least a couple segments on Robert Kennedy. Yes. Uh, I think one was about a photographer who had taken photos there. The other was about the assassination in general. Mm-hmm. I don't recall them doing anything on JFK. Now, again, let me have another uh, disclaimer here and say I do not know, although I did research into Unsolved Mysteries right. uh, for not only the piece I ended up writing about, but also come on shows like this and talk about it. I do not know every segment, every case, and every episode of Unsolved Mysteries. So please, if you react to me on 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 Facebook or on on X or elsewhere, please. I don't know every segment. I don't know everyone. I I only got to watch like a few episodes in preparation, even for this um, even for this interview today. Last night I was watching their documentary. They had a new documentary uh, commemorating the 35th anniversary called. Um, Unsolved Mysteries Behind the Legacy, mm-hmm. and which I think is available on YouTube now. And so I saw that. I saw the first episode of Unsolved last night again. I had seen it previously as part of my research. Right. So I saw it again, and I saw a couple other first season episodes. 
So I do not know every episode, <laughs> just so that I let it. I don't know every case. I don't know everyone. No, fair enough. And look, if you go to uh, unsolved.com, no kidding, they yeah. have that uh, web address. If you go there, you can still see uh, stuff about the program, the legacy of it, uh, mysteries that are as yet still unsolved. And, and I had Jamie Scott Enyard on this show, by the way, just as a follow-up on uh, the RFK thing. Uh, that mm-hmm. photographer, I had that photographer on the right. show. I think I used the still from Unsolved mysteries to promote it because yeah. it was one of the best pictures that they had of him out there uh at the time and i used it because i was like hey look i want to talk about his photographs because that is an interesting i don't know if you're familiar with the details there but again they A were little. Just, yeah well they were reaching out to the public and saying look if you know something and in a lot of cases they found that there were people that had tips that had information uh that could present something to uh, the people at unsolved mysteries one way or another uh that would be indeed helpful um in some cases like i said there were victims of things there were people that disappeared uh you know all kinds of stuff and if you look on there mm-hmm. now they have you know episodes they show you are on various streaming platforms uh, there are episodes on netflix and hulu and uh all mm-hmm. of that so you know and this is a weird thing because again it's not really true crime but there are true crime elements to it and uh right. again uh peacock pluto uh you know all these different things youtube even has episodes of this right it's like from the, uh, filmrise which is the company i believe that if they don't own the rights then they're that the distributor that's uh that's still that uh, distributes unsolved mysteries right um for for broadcast or or other kinds of uh, platforms right so and i've watched unsolved mysteries on youtube for the past couple of years mm. so um i have been watching episodes i uh, to be fair, I know people are going to ask me, did you watch the original Unsolved Mysteries? Right. Yes, I did. I watched it uh, when I was in college. Uh, get home from a late class, get off the bus, head to my apartment, and it was I was just in time to watch it. So I did see it years ago. I saw the original. So um, getting to... And it was on multiple That's networks. So just really quickly right. for for just just for context here, it was on mm-hmm. various networks. Started out on NBC in 1987, right. and then uh, continued on to uh, uh, well, let's see, uh, continued on to CBS. Uh, mm-hmm. for the 10th season, you know, all these different things. It was across all different networks and then eventually went to, uh, Lifetime in 2000, right. uh, which is, you know, so th- this is something that continued on. I'm and still on. trying to figure that yeah. one out. Uh, right. <laughs> well, how did it, how did Lifetime get that show? I don't know. I, I didn't look at this, but I wasn't able to find the specific details. I know Lifetime was airing, uh, reruns of the show, I think, when it was still in first run. Yes. So, that might have been one aspect of that. Right. And, uh, and they wound yeah. up, yeah, they wound right. up commissioning new episodes though, which was interesting because it was sort of thought to be, uh, you know, uh, no longer viable commercially. And, you know, j- just sort of like the odd thing with Star Trek. It was so cheap that it went across all the independent, uh, you know, TV channels for a while. And because of its wide distribution actually gained greater popularity than if they had held out for more money trying to distribute the thing, which is really, uh, a fascinating model, right? <laughs> right. Um, well, back yeah. then, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because, uh, well, I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan. Um, and Star Trek is one of those shows that shows the power of syndication. Yes. 
like uh, syndicating shows. So that's an indication of that. Um, and they reinvented syndication. Star Trek, just as a side note, reinvented syndication mm-hmm. when they went to the next generation. I'm I'm quite aware of media history. Yeah, first run. They went, Absolutely. They it skipped. was Paramount first run. Right. And they, they were spending big money as a first run syndicated show. Yes. They were spending big money on Star Trek, the next right. generation. Not that it, the cast got it at first. I mean, what I heard of the conditions, I shouldn't be talking about Star Trek, but uh, it's interesting yeah, that's a whole other episode. I could go and talk about Star Trek: The Next Generation. Well, absolutely, I'm a big fan of Star Trek, but absolutely. I got to talk about Unsolved Mysteries. Yes, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, let's let's get back into Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> but it's worth bringing up that that, that this is yeah. something to you know. There, there's the business of it, and then there's the phenomena of it. And Next Generation right. skipped this whole process of going to a network in the first place. Uh, they they did it to, uh, and and then later on they would use Star Trek to literally launch a network, which is is really fascinating. Right. Like, like Star Trek is an interesting thing in media history anyway, uh, whether you right. like Star Trek or not. But anyway, back like to I said, Unsolved I can talk about Mystery. Star Trek yeah. all day. Uh, Maybe yeah, next getting time. back to Unsolved Mysteries. Next time. You were, that, mentioning, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you were mentioning, yeah, you were mentioning, I don't want to get derailed because I love Star Trek. Right. Um, so, uh, you, Unsolved Mysteries had an interesting history. So let me just deal with the history of this first. Um, Unsolved Mysteries unlike was unlike the vast majority of primetime network TV shows when it aired in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. The first thing was that it technically was an, a one-hour or what they call an hour-long show, like the two basic uh, aspects of TV are the half-hour sitcom and the hour-long drama. Right. So technically, Unsolved was an hour-long show, but it was not a hour-long, strictly fictional or scripted dramatic show. Well, what do you think it about my assertion? Called, yeah, what do you think about my well, assertion that it was like the one of those shows in that time period that was meant to have public involvement, like it was interactive in a way, uh, right. like like uh, America's Most Wanted and uh, a few other shows where they literally would evoke public response, call us, let us know, participate in mm-hmm. this show, literally help us figure things out. Either it was to catch a criminal or to catch somebody or to find something um, that. That was a kind of a subgenre, also, right at that time. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Well, well, what happened is this. Your point is an interesting one because that was what I call the two part of the two selling points of the show, as I called them. One was viewer interaction. At first, it was a PO box for unsolved mysteries when it became a series, and then it became the one eight hundred number. So viewer interaction. If you know something. Call us here. Um, then the other selling point was what I call the the basis of the show, what the show essentially was, which was what I call a multi-varied, multi-faceted show. Mm-hmm. Unlike even shows prior that are what I call true life shows, meaning dealing with true um, factual subject matter. I'll give you an example of a show because I compare it a little in my piece, uh, okay. in my piece, in my article. Um, there was a show for a number of years hosted, strangely enough, by an actor from Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy. It's called right. In Search Of. Right. In Search Of was not an hour long. It was a half hour show. But it was a show that 
it was a show that dealt with subject, historical subject matter primarily, but also paranormal uh, and various other types of subject matter. But it was the episodes were done on a subject-by-subject basis, meaning Mm -hmm. if they looked at something like Jack the Ripper or the Mary Celeste, they looked at it, or uh, Stonehenge or something, they looked at it entirely for the half hour. Right. Stonehenge was one of my favorite ones, actually, where they just, how did this happen? They would ask the question, Mm -hmm. and they would Mm -hmm. put some, you know, interesting accounts, this, that, so here's some evidence, and there was a half hour. Go ahead. So In Search Of, to me, was a kind of, I would call it standard, true life show. Unsolved Mysteries was different in that it was from In Search Of, obviously, in that it, one, was an hour-long show, right? But it was also a show, and I make this point, that basically took, I think I made this point in my my, uh, article, that it takes the basis of news, which I would say are the block, or segment type uh, structure, skeletal structure, A block, B block, C block, D block, and it uses that as the skeletal structure and as the the main frame for the show. And other and and also what it did was it didn't have a singular subject matter. It had multiple subject matters right. because of the skeletal structure, the block, what I call the block structure. It allowed for different types of cases, different types of segments, different stories to be told in one episode. So you could have, from what I understand, they had, at least this was, I think, cited in the documentary behind the legacy, 20 categories of um, uh, of subjects okay. for unsolved mysteries. So you had stuff like you would have normally have the crime stories, right? Where there was some criminal that was on the loose. Right. You also had what they call lost love, where somebody was seeking a family member or a friend or someone that made a difference in their life. You then you had what you would call the um, you had others like final appeal, which is actually one of my favorites where someone who was convicted of a crime was allowed to make their case Mm. as to why they didn't commit the crime. Um, So there were different kinds of stories, issues, elements, cases within. So that structure, A, B, C, D, E, block, what have you, normally consisted of about anywhere between four to five segments. And this often included what they would call an update. And the update was, of course, an update on a previous case. So if a criminal was on the loose and they had been caught, then they would have this update. And from what I had found in my research, they had to try to keep pretty fluid in terms of the structural organization of each episode. Because if something uh, came up, they found a fugitive or they found a missing person, they would then send a unit to go out and capture that. They had, I think, a separate unit, a separate crew, which did updates only okay. on Unsolved Mysteries. So uh, they went and did that, and they would get that B-roll, edit it, and uh, get it out there. Um, so it was very different from other what I call true life shows. Even to this day, there really aren't shows like Unsolved Mysteries. 
they don't really exist with that kind of multi-varied and multiple type of segments and issues. At best, with some of these true crime-oriented shows, you might have a segment, two segments in one episode. But it's not normally the case. It really was a very different show for a number of reasons. As my my, uh, piece called You May Be Able to Help Solve a Mystery makes clear, because I get into why the show worked, well, I and think, that's the, the I think, of the piece. Yeah, I think where you quote Robert Stack, which, by the way, uh, on uh, Mr. Lanier's Substack, which I'm going to link to and actually publish uh, with your permission, I'm going to republish your article yeah. on my site uh, and, oh, and add a few things to it just to just to give some references. Um, but, uh, but you know, we're, you quote Robert Stack in one of your uh, paragraphs here, which I have just mm-hmm. pulled up in front of me, uh, where you, you quote him from an L.A. Times interview uh, where mm-hmm. he says, quote, we're balancing two needs here. We're trying to produce theater and we're looking to do a public service. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, you didn't feel as though you were watching something that was sensationalistic uh, for the sheer sake of the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Let's excite the audience only. That wasn't Mm -hmm. what the purpose was. It did seem as though they were literally trying to do a service for the people that, you know, were, Mm -hmm. were involved here. Like you said, the lost love thing. Uh, it could have been a missing family member. It could have been someone that they lost track of uh, many years ago for whatever reason, terrible circumstances, something. And then you would get the, uh, like you said, the updates, which, by the way, they change those out sometimes. They There would be new mm-hmm. updates, especially when they started to do the right. Lifetime thing. Uh, Lifetime right. had, uh, you know, updates because they, they would rerun a show from the 80s. And the mystery might not have been solved, but 20 years later, somebody comes around and, you know, finally gives them a piece of information. And they might publicize that or bring that person on and say, oh, they were looking for the witness. Well, here's that witness. Uh, They were looking for this piece of evidence. They were looking for this person. Here's the person found. Uh, And they would show you in a quick flash, hey, you know, here's the reunion of these two people, the lost love. Um and it was just, uh, it, it was really interesting. I don't know. It was, it was interesting theater. And you also got the feeling that legitimately they were trying to help people that were in search of answers for things and unsolved mystery, truly, mm-hmm. you know. So right. I, I find that interesting. And I find that you use the quote from the host, uh, Robert Stack, um, mm-hmm. in the article, which uh, sums it up pretty well. What, what do you say? Yeah. I thought it was a good quote when I was doing my research. I said, well, I've got to use this quote. Right. Uh, so that was a part of it. The interesting thing to me about Unsolved, because I never thought about Unsolved Mysteries until I started doing the research. And the odd thing about the article um, is I never intended to write an article about Unsolved. I actually, because I decided I was going to talk about it the next time I get interviewed on shows, I was actually doing research just to be on shows like this. Uh, and just for shows like this, because to be honest, I really didn't know anything about Unsolved Mysteries as a TV show, right. as an entity. We talked about Star Trek earlier. I know a lot about Star Trek because I'm a Star Trek fan. Right. But I knew absolutely nothing about Unsolved Mysteries. And so I started doing the research. And I initially was, when I was doing my research, reading articles and doing, listening to interviews and the, the standard kind of uh, structure of research, 
what I realized was when I was looking at my, my notepad, uh, my reporter's notepad, which I still have, I looked at it and I went, you know, I could turn this into an article, which is kind of unusual. So I didn't really do research for my article. I had done research mm. for appearances on talk shows, and the research I did basically helped become the article. Mm. So it was unlike anything I've ever done before. Uh, I've never done that before in 22 years of being a journalist or a freelance writer. I had never done research in general and then just decided to write an article about it. This never happened. So it was very interesting. And the initial article really was going to be about the history of the show and uh, the behind the scenes, which I got really wrapped up in, got really fascinated with. Mm. And then my mind changed when I read two articles, one from the New York Times and one from the L.A. Times. That kind of it was about the rebooted show. And those who don't know, there's a reboot of Unsolved Mysteries on uh, Netflix. Right. I think they've had like three volumes, as they call it, three seasons. So just wanted to let people know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the characterizations of the show from the writers, from the reporters, just was total BS. I looked at that and I went, that doesn't seem like Unsolved Mysteries to me. And again, I'm not an Unsolved Mysteries, I wasn't an Unsolved Mysteries fan. I was an Unsolved Mysteries viewer, right. but I wasn't a fan. So I didn't have a proprietary view of it, but I just felt, I guess, objectively, I went, I, that doesn't jive with me. And so then I thought Socratically, okay, if this isn't what the show is about, what is it about? Right. How does it work? And that's where the idea for this article came from. It was like, you know, why it works. Well, see, but that's, so, but that's oh, a correct yeah. journalistic instinct, right? When you read a story mm. and you say to yourself, look, intuitively, I know something is very wrong here with the way this is being described. What do you do as a uh, an ethical journalist? You say, well, mm-hmm. what can I learn about this? And perhaps I could represent the missing pieces here, the mischaracterization. I could correct it. Uh, I think journalists uh, really should be doing that more often. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's like a copy and paste. I don't world anymore, either. but yeah. So I've gone through that. I don't know how many times. I hate to say this, but I don't know how many times I've looked at a another uh, newspaper article or a magazine. Not so much magazine, but newspaper article or some TV show or TV news segment and gone. No, nah, I don't think so. Uh, no, nah, that's not right. No, that's incorrect. So that's not unusual with me. Sad to say. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good commentary or not, but anyway, uh, I wrote the piece, and the piece is available on my Substack, of course. Right. Um, it's a first for me because I, I don't think I've ever written about a TV show before. I've never done an, a piece like this. I've never done. Again, I used to review movies. I was a movie reviewer, online movie reviewer from about 2002 to 2010. I used to cover film festivals, among other things. So movies I know about, Television, I know a good deal about, but I never had any interest in reviewing TV shows or analyzing them or assessing them or dissecting them. So this is brand new territory for me. You are talking about this show now. Right. It's brand new territory for me. I don't talk about TV shows 
on talk shows. Well, I'll tell you why I appreciate you. Now, some people are going to find this strange that I even wanted to bring you on with this subject okay. because usually I'm very dismissive of a lot of television and stuff like that. Uh, I don't watch yeah. a lot of it, and I used to when I was younger, but I don't any longer. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, quite frankly, um, we've gone into an age where even in the podcast world, any sort of media creation, um, all people do, it seems to me, is they – they simply pick up old ideas and redo them. They never mm -hmm. seem to innovate any longer. And there mm -hmm. was a time in which people tried things and sometimes not so successfully. Uh, but people changed the genres themselves. People changed the way television was done. Uh, whether you're talking about Lucille Ball or Married with Children or, you know, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Different things have altered the media because people were innovative about it. Now, uh, in in our current sort of, you know, uh, milieu of what's happening, um, here we are. We, we, we have podcasters out there that don't know how to do a podcast. They, they get on. They have a discussion. They give their opinions. They BS. And that's it. And some of them decide to focus on fandom. And they 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 just attach themselves to the popular fandom. Like I can't tell you how many Star like you and I are both Star Trek fans, right? Um, yeah, okay. How many Star Trek podcasts uh, are out there? How many Star Trek YouTube shows are out there? Um, mm -hmm. They are, but they're but they're just they're just attachments to something else. They're not innovating anything. You know, I mean, they pretend to. Oh, I have you know the captain's chair, and I break down each episode. Episode and I go through each series and yeah, that's great because you have this wide field of stuff that somebody created when they were innovating uh, a, a particular type of entertainment, you know, and you uh, piled onto it. But there were points in time not too long ago when people imagined different things and created things that were really, truly different in their character, in their presentation, uh, whether it was something that was meant to be a public service or it was pure entertainment, is irrelevant. There was a more innovative time where we didn't just make the 18th edition to the Star Wars universe, right? <laughs> Disney keeps making more and more Star Wars just because they can. You know what I mean? We we, we don't have superhero well, movies coming out yeah, constantly. Started on that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> You're bringing up stuff that I could talk about for hours. No, no, exactly, but that's my well, point. I'm like, mm, I can't talk about it because I'm here to promote my piece. And, and, no, and, I know, and I know. And I want people to, but I want people <laughs> to like read this. right now. I'm yeah. telling you, it's really tough because I'm like, Star Trek, mm, Star I know. Wars, mm, I know. I know, I know, but, but the thing is... <laughs> so it's funny for me right now. I'm like, man, I'm chopping at the bit. It's okay, but, um, but, but the, the reason why yeah. this piece is important <laughs> is because it points back to a time when, you know what, somebody created this, and if you take a look at the, the way it was created, it's not just let's do what somebody else already did and slap a new name on it. Let's not just, you know, tag on to some existing thing. This was, I mean, Netflix at this point is tagging on to an existing thing and trying to redo it, yes. But what I'm saying is, you go back to a time when this was created, when this was, you know, different 
in its uh, in its time period, right? And that's what's great about this is that you know what you show people. If you innovate, you might actually create something that becomes a phenomena because it is attractive, it's interesting, it's entertaining and educational uh, on some level, right? There are ways mm-hmm. of doing this. Like I used to let you brought up in search of that was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid too. Uh, mm-hmm. Was in search of because it was so great. It was like this quick rush of information and all of a sudden you might want to go run out buy books find out about this subject you got very interested in the subjects that uh leonard nimoy was the host you know but um it wasn't i don't think it was really his show it was like somebody else i I forget who the writers were at this point but it didn't matter Mm -hmm. they did such a good job tantalizing you with this fascinating something that you you would all that you know like i knew people who literally got you know involved in the jack the ripper thing and were suddenly reading all the books and trying to find out about the real history and seeing if people were still alive and you know like all kinds of weird things um they would go and visit the landmarks because they had initially seen it on a television show uh this was kind of inspirational um and it was because it was different now, you know, when you get more of the same, more of the same, more of the same, it's just like this, you know, it's the same thing. The guy's playing practical jokes on people. Okay, we had that little subgenre for a minute, uh, you know, uh, culminating with jackass and that ridiculousness um, and the show ridiculousness, right? Anyways, um, all these things going on. Um, you know, the, the people that just took internet videos and, you know, the Daniel Tosh sort of format <laughs> where, you know, I mean, it's just these were innovations when they were first done. People could look at things and do them in a different way. And I think Unsolved Mysteries is an example of that where. Indeed, mysterious things go all the way back to, you know, uh, uh, you know, written literature, radio. You know, there used to be tons of radio stuff that presented mysteries. There might have even been a, a show called Unsolved Mysteries that was different from this uh, in, in the time of like, uh, you know, the theater of the mind where radio was uh, the primary entertainment source. Right. Uh, it was the, the highest level of entertainment source for mass distribution. They had mysterious things. Things on there. Uh, some of them were, you know, plays like um, and 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 series like the, the Shadow and Dick Tracy and things like this. Yes, but what I'm saying is that there were times when these things didn't exist, and somebody had to imagine how can we do this different. And Unsolved Mysteries is an example of it. You, you, you struck on something that, in a way, uh, did its own thing, has not really been truly duplicated, and yet contributes to a bunch of subgenres and inspired other media. Um, like I brought mm-hmm. up real people earlier, John Barber, mm-hmm. I've had him on and I, I love the guy, Right, but I mean, um, yeah, I, I'm Facebook friends. I think I'm still Facebook friends with him, but uh, I had talked to him on Facebook. Very nice guy. seems like, um, and yeah, I remember real people in the 70s. You know, right. shows like real people, that's ridiculous. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's incredible. That's incredible um, was the ripoff of yeah. real people. But it's so funny because yeah. that's incredible was the immediate ripoff <laughs> where they brought in a bunch of hosts, you know, uh, your Kathy Lee host Crosby. In studio, host in a studio with an audience. Right. Um, now, it's interesting in talking about Unsolved Mysteries because and talking about how different it was. Right. I, I mentioned the structure of the show, right? The history of the show is interesting in that it was a show 
Obviously, it was unlike other shows on network TV in prime time at the time because it didn't come from an idea that got turned into a treatment that got turned into a script that was turned into a pilot. Unsolved Mysteries came about because of specials. So the kind of special that uh, was done by these two producers, John Cosgrove and Terry Dunmure, were documentary filmmakers. And they... They had done a uh, documentary, uh, they done a special for NBC called Missing, Have You Seen This Person? Right. It was hosted by Meredith Baxter, who was a star of the show Family Ties, the big hit sitcom, and her husband, uh, David Bernie. And that, of course, was dealing with missing people, missing persons. And that special did well. It was on NBC. It did well. And it came out in 85. Uh, there were a couple more uh, specials that came out of the missing specials in, I think, January and April of 1986. Uh, that original missing, have you, have you seen this person, I believe, got nominated for an Emmy Award. And so what happened was that Cosgrove and Muir came up with the concept for Unsolved Mysteries, which was not just to have missing people, but to have, as I mentioned before, with the skeletal structure, the multivariate structure, to have, uh, you know, missing crime stories, uh, to have lost loves, to have final appeal, to have uh, historical stories, to have various other types of stories as a part of this, but all mysteries. And that's what kept that was the, the motifs, that was the, the through line, that was the thread through everything. Right. So um, that Unsolved Mysteries actually premiered as a special in January of 1987, in 1987. And it was hosted by Raymond Burr, mm-hmm. who people know as Perry Mason. So he did the first. And it was a series of specials. Uh, you had... Um, Carl Malden, who had been not only a, a movie actor, won an Oscar, but also been a TV star with the streets of San Francisco. Right. He he hosted a couple of the Unsolved Mystery specials. Then Robert Stack got hosted for several more specials. Right. And then finally in, in, in 1988, Unsolved Mysteries got turned into a primetime TV series, uh, greenlit as a primetime show. And it ran on NBC, I think, for about nine seasons with Robert Stack. And then, as you mentioned, they went to CBS for a couple of seasons, then Lifetime. And that's after that was its initial run, because Robert Stack died, I believe, in, not long after that. I think it was like 2003 right. or so, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yes. He had died of cancer, unfortunately. Um, and so the show had a very different kind of history. It was a show... Uh, you know, with these specials, what the networks would do is they would use them as kind of place filler, seat holder, uh, time management type uh, programming. Right. You know, if they didn't have a show ready or they, you know, they didn't they didn't want to put on some mid-season replacement in this slot right away, they could do with this kind of special or entertainment type special. Right. And I think these specials did did better than I think expected. And NBC got interested and they turned it into a show, which was successful. 
But this is a show that was a top 20 show. <laughs> right. And to explain uh, how different it was, just really quickly as a reference point, to explain how different it was in 1987 and 88, according to Nielsen, the top shows on network television in America were things like, uh, let, let me just uh, dance through the list really quickly, The Wonder Years and ALF and The Golden Girls and Growing Pains and Who's the Boss and Night Court, uh, The Cosby mm-hmm. Show, mostly comedies. Right. And they were all sitcom mm-hmm. situation comedies. Yeah. Mostly that was what your big money was. And NBC was the uh, most dominant network, it appears, uh, with CBS running close behind and uh, ABC uh, running a distant third. And, you know, even though CBS had stuff like Dallas at night and, uh, you know, people, different uh, NBC had Monday night football, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, you really had, uh, you know, mostly those scripted sitcoms seem to be dominating mm-hmm. the airwaves in 87 and 88. So, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. That's a very good comparison. So I'm glad you brought up those shows because one of the things that I noted earlier was it was different from virtually every other primetime uh, network TV show in that it was a show that was not only true life, as I mentioned in Anna Seaton, uh, in search of, right. but it was also a show that was not a pure entertainment show. It was more of an information show. And it wasn't, I, I know the producers don't really see, I know they, they, they have the new Netflix, uh, Unsolved Mysteries. They don't really view it as a true crime show. I know they kind of edge it. And I always, and I, I don't disagree with that. Right. I think they're right. I think, I think they're right. Right. Um, I think they're right. Well, the only I informational, the, just really quickly, again, to note for what mm-hmm. was what was rated highest back then, the only informational show in the top 10, uh, according to uh, Nielsen again in 87 and 88, was 60 Minutes, which had been a mm-hmm. staple of network television, as you well know, CBS right. uh, magazine, you know, news magazine show. It's still big now, uh, seems like. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it's a staple. It's one of those things. And that's the only thing that was really in the top 10 that was of an informational sort of uh you know even the uh the news shows nightline and all that none of that Mm -hmm. stuff was that big at that time uh nightline really was born out of the um what he called the the hostage crisis that's where that thing became popular that's right it was the iranian hardship hostage crisis yeah and it it kind of evolved from there it was supposed to be a again place filler show late at night uh time filler seat filler show as i call it and that evolved to become a staple of late night programming for ABC. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So the, it, that, again, the comparisons are very apt. I'm glad you bring up these other shows because they demonstrate the landscape of network TV, the landscape of TV at the time, and why Unsolved Mysteries was very different. Yes. No one was going to call up to the Cosby show or Night Court and try to figure out what happened on that show. There was nothing to figure out. The plot goes from, you know, uh, goes from A to B to C, and then it ends, right? But people could call up the the 1-800 number. It previously was the P.O. Box. But the 1-800 number for Unsolved Mysteries and say, oh, that guy you had on the show was an escape fugitive. He looks like the guy who lives in an apartment across from me. Or the guy who works. Uh, at the store that I work at or the guy who uses the gym that I'm at 
Um, that's what people could do. And there was a kind of immediacy about it. Um, I don't know what the results are like now because I know they have the new Unsolved Mysteries. And I'm sure people will go online and send emails and go to the unsolved.com site. But I don't think it's the same as it was back in 88, 89, 90, and onward up until, uh, well, at the end of it with Lifetime 2001 right. or so. Um, 2001, 2002. There isn't that immediacy. There isn't that freshness. There isn't that vitality of interactivity that you got with that show. And that was one of the reasons it did. Now, what was brought up was America's Most Wanted, but America's Most Wanted is a crime show right. based on the, the UK show Crime Watch. And that's a pure crime show. It, I think America's Most Wanted clearly was a show that the fledgling Fox Network at the time must have greenlit partly because of what was happening with Unsolved Mysteries. That's what I'm thinking. They must have yeah. seen that criminal component. But I know the producers of Unsolved, they don't really see their show as a true crime show, even with the new reboot that's out. They don't really see it as a crime show. I don't disagree, but I think that crime and, and the criminal element, weird way to say it, but the criminal element of the show really helped the show become successful. Right. Uh, because my understanding is when it came to the stories on Unsolved Mysteries, one of the way they'd get like segments and cases and so forth was by cold calling and, and also calling up cop, uh, you know, police departments across the country. And at first, uh, from what I understand, they were like very kind of hesitant mm -hmm. to get involved. But once the success record was being demonstrated, episode after episode after episode with the updates. Right. They were aboard. Uh, and I know that Terry Dunbura said in interviews, the police in a lot of small towns and, and, and a lot of areas would roll out the red carpet for Unsolved Mysteries. And that's another aspect I should address. Yeah. I don't want to go too far into what the sh how the show worked because I want people to read my piece. Right. But I'll just cite one aspect of why the show is a success, why the show worked. Authenticity, primarily in terms of locations. They, when an event took place, they would usually go to the state, the city, and the town, and the area where it took place. Often they would hire local actors to portray people or people who were involved in the events uh, portrayed themselves mm -hmm. and were involved in some way. So uh, now, of course, this didn't really make for any winning acting, but, you know, uh, but it, it made for, it still made for compelling TV. I, after all, these are reenactments. Right. I mean, if you want really well-acted stuff, you make a MOW, a movie of the week, or you make a theatrical motion picture and put it in theaters, you know, or a TV show, or another kind of TV show, one hour. 
Right. And um, I think, I think it's undeniable, but, though, that it's certainly whether it was meant to be, uh, you know, true crime was meant to be an aspect of it, but not a main aspect of it. It was just, right. you know, part of it. But the thing is, you can't deny, though, and I don't think anybody could, that it had a great deal of influence on later true crime because mm-hmm. of all of these cold case shows out there, there's tons yeah. of them under different names, different networks, you know, Discovery's yeah, got them true. and History Channel's got them and they're, they're cold case shows, I call them. Uh, and I, I'm probably using the wrong label, but you know what I'm talking about. And they indeed go to the locations because I think Unsolved Mysteries did it first and showed them mm-hmm. that it worked. They do reenactments. Yeah. Sometimes they try and show, you know, legitimate footage too. I think Unsolved Mysteries occasionally did that where it was like, here's some real footage and now here's a reenactment. And they were mm-hmm. one of the first shows to not try and blur the line. They would tell you, this is a reenactment. You know, based well, on this or yeah. that. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, the, my assessment of Unsolved Mysteries <clears throat> from more of a producing and um, and from a television standpoint is these were fundamentally documentary filmmakers. Hosford Muir made documentaries. They had made a documentary back in 83 for HBO called Five Dangerous Guns, which was about gun ownership. They And I think the directors often on Unsolved Mysteries came from documentary backgrounds. So these are primarily documentary filmmakers right. doing a network show. And so the I think Unsolved Mysteries didn't look like the standard dramatic show because it wasn't a dramatic show. It was a one-hour show. Right. I, I think it was different because they were going for authenticity, which is the point that I make in my article. That's very different. I hate to say this, but most so-called Hollywood film and TV commercials, uh, not just commercials, but TV and, uh, and films, don't really care that much about authenticity. Some do, many do not. Hmm. I hesitate to use the film Napoleon as an example, um, you know, because the director <laughs> famously told historians what he thought uh, they should do. In, initially in contradistinction or in contrast to his movie. Um, and so Unsolved was different in that, and I cite this because I can't cite every reason why it works because nobody will read the article if I don't, um, but it was an authentic show. Right. It was shot in the location. When you say that it was among the first to do that, I think outside of news, you, I think I think it was one of the first. Right. I mean, it was a show. I mean, I was looking at some episodes last night and uh the episode you know the the segment i looked at was the db cooper case which i've discussed on your program right um this year in fact right um and it was one of the cases i got from unsolved mysteries not that i hadn't heard of it before but i'd seen that segment right um i also saw one called about don henry and kevin ives and the death of those two young men in arkansas that's another one i saw right very well made uh, that was a very well done segment. Um, and I saw the first episode of Unsolved, of Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, the pilot, like I said, was a special with Raymond Burr, but the first episode, of course, was with Robert Stack, who did all the subsequent episodes. Right. And so the show was, the show had a real feel to it. It, it, and you know, you, you look at this show and you, it's shot in different locations. 
it's shot using at times real people. You know, you mentioned real people, the right. TV show. Yes. Well, this show used real people, and you could tell often there wasn't anything inauthentic about Unsolved Mysteries. Right. If anything comes out to me, it's it's the show wasn't inauthentic, and the show fundamentally was trying to get the audience to take part by saying, look, someone out there knows something. And if you know something, call us. Right. And that's where they had a telecenter, which was like a, a mat, you know, in a, you know, a room with a, a large amount of cubicles and um, for episodes when they would, when, during the episodes when they air, they get called. And often you'd have uh, law enforcement personnel that were standing by uh, there to, um, you know, perhaps talk to somebody or what have you. And so the term interactive, which you used, is very important. It was, I think, very much a pioneer of interactivity on TV. Right. So what I want to do is have people go to That Is The Week That Is, which is the title mm -hmm. of your Substack. I want people to read it there. Um, right. As I said, I'm going to publish it here, too. But I'm going to give you guys the reference link to go and look at the original article. Uh, I want you to do that. Explore this idea because, again, I think it is of uh, great interest. Excuse me. It has a lot to say. See, I'm still coughing a little bit, guys. Sorry. Excuse me again. Um, not even going to hit the cough button. All right. Uh, here we go. I want you to go over to Albert Lanier's Substack. Check it out for sure. That is the week mm -hmm. that is, is the general title. And this particular article. Yeah, this particular article is called You May Be Able to Solve a Mystery. Uh, and that's it. And it is about uh, unsolved mysteries. And it is worth your time. So that's all I got to say about that. And uh, again, I want to thank Albert Lanier for being with us tonight. The Ocelli Effect is done for... like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia by author Mike Swanson with new documentation never seen before that'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War by author Mike Swanson. WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. 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 Go there now.
The views expressed by callers, co-hosts, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. Ocelli.com. In denial of secret wars with airstrikes and tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Uncle, I'll bet you remember the time when Benjamin Fulford said that the Asian Secret Society was going to dispatch ninjas to take out the Illuminati to change the entire world for the better. That is never going to happen. That it, never did. It never did, did it? Mm-mm. Yeah, because there's a lot of false promises. Fools? I can't say one. We better not say and be polite, uh, but oh, there are yeah. no false promises at the Ocelli.com no, radio network. That, that's exactly it. Not. It's truth, the point, right to the point. And this is what I like. Straight to the point. Ocelli. Ocelli.com. Listen now. Listen now. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFK assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald's girlfriend, she knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFK assassination broken into her claim? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get the results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. What? are the dynamics of a crowd. How do you move a mob? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? I don't know how. Join them first. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them 
in their language and their level make their hate your hate if they are poor talk to them of poverty if they are afraid talk to them of their fears if they are angry give them objects for their anger but most of all the thing that is most of the essence is that you make this mark an extension of yourself what are the dynamics of a crowd how do you move a mark how do you excite how do you make them feel as one with you What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite? How do you make them feel as one with you? Join Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language. On their level, make their hate your hate. Talk to them of poverty. Talk to them of their fears. Give them objects for their anger. Make this mob an extension of yourself. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're listening to the Ocelli Effect at Ocelli.com. Ocelli.com. Get ready for the Ocelli Effect. The Ocelli.com radio network.